Oh, darn. When we are doing the will of our true self, we are inevitably doing the will of the universe. In magic, these are seen as indistinguishable. That every human soul is in fact one human soul. It is the soul of the universe itself. And as long as you are doing the will of the universe, then it is impossible to do anything wrong. I just wanted to uh, maybe give a little intro. I'll probably hang out uh, more so at the end after the interview um, to do the Gen stuff, to talk about Genesis pre-orange. I, I haven't really uh, been too outspoken about that passing. Um, it couldn't have come at a crazier time. It's actually been w exactly one month since Jen's birthday, uh, which is the day before mine on February 22nd, um, and so they made it to 70, and forgive me if I misgender them, I'm such an airhead when it comes to certain things like that, so <clears throat> please catch me. Um, yeah, I, I've been waiting for um, maybe, I guess, a little bit more time. You know, I recorded this interview with Carl Abrahamson a week before Jed passed and they had just released an album together called Loyalty Does Not End in Death. How synchronous is that? Um, I also, uh, Uno, you were talking about, you, you were reading uh, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight, which I finished uh, probably about a year ago. Um, and there's some kind of not... Um, it's not defamatory, but it doesn't paint Jen in the best light. And, of course, you know, Cozy uh, from Throbbing Gristle and her book has talked about the long-storied abuse. Of course, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's important to mention such things. I think it's important not to deify uh, certain people. And I think that's where I was with Jen. Um their work with the Temple of Psychic Youth, Throbbing Gressel, Psychic TV, all of that was very instrumental in my upbringing, especially in the forms of music and occult philosophy. Um, but I'm always very careful to deify people. I think the pan Pandrogeny uh, experiment was is, is beautifully underrated as a romantic um, art kind of piece, a living art form. And if you notice the episode art, uh, Divine by the Disruption Generator by Eric J. Millar, is the card Androgynous. I'll just show that. I wonder if you can see the words. It's a little bright. So I thought that was pretty fitting. Um, but yeah, so, you know, Carl and I talk a lot about um, his work. Uh, basically, his work on the, the documentary uh, Inside the Devil's Den, which is his documentary, a very personal one, and a very brilliant one, actually. Um, I felt a lot of pride watching it. It's just really well done uh, about Anton LaVey, um, 
We talk about uh, his wonderful magical works, his many storied works. We last time he was on the podcast, he talked about the book of culture, which I think he's probably more widely known for. Um, his work with Vanessa Sinclair, Doctor Vanessa Sinclair, his wife, incredible stuff. They do amazing stuff via Patreon, and I had Vanessa on as well. Um, so yeah, we we talk about that, and of course we brushed up on the Genesis Peorage stuff, and um, it's kind of haunting now to think about that we talked about the the Genesis, forgive the pun, but the Genesis of loyalty does not end with death. Um, the record that they just released uh, right before Genesis passed. So, without further ado, we'll just kind of get right in to my chat with Carl Abrahamson returning. And we talk everything from talismanic living, total environments, Kenneth Anger, William S. Burroughs. I mean, it's a long and storied chat, and I'm very uh, proud to share it with you. So, thank you, Una. Thanks for everyone that's tuning in. Um, I'll be back at the end for some more jib-jab. So, Carl, I just finished Inside the Devil's Den, and congrats. Man, that's a great work. Yeah. (laughs) I I loved it. Yeah, I felt there was like a a bit of pride I felt, too, uh, about LeVay and about you as a creator. And I just, yeah, I thought it was wonderful. Um, There's a lot of standout parts to me, but I just wanted to ask how long it took to kind of gather all of the interviews. Yeah, well, it's, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, It, it. It was indeed, uh, you know, a lot of work and and kind of emotional work as well. So um, it's hard to say because working on films the way I work on films is not something that, that I do like eight hours a day, five days a week, you know. So it did stretch over a period of time. I think um, the original impetus to um, do this came after the um, release of California Infernal, you know, that book with the pictures of of LaVey and uh, Jane Mansfield. So that was back in 2016 or 17, something like that, and just brought a lot of memories back uh, because I wrote the intro for that book and it sort of tells the same story as I tell in the film, basically, about how we first um, met and, you know, what it meant to me. And then it sort of dawned on me that maybe my impressions weren't unique. I'm sure they were, they still are very unique, but maybe other people who were there during the same time approximately had similar kinds of experiences. And I thought, you know, um, let's just, you know, pull the strings and talk to the people that I, that I've known for a long time and some that are more recent acquaintances and, you know, just talk to them. And everybody was of course, super, uh, stoked about it because there hasn't really been a documentary about LaVey since uh, Nick Bugas and Adam Parfrey's um, right. Speak of the Devil, mm-hmm. right? That's the name, I think. Yeah, from 1992 or 1993. Um, yeah, and the Feral Press. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and wa- issued by Wavelength uh, Video. So that's a good, that's a good film, but but uh, time, you know, passed and, and uh, LaVey passed. And you know, so I think it was time to, to make something really new. And of course, you know, could have gone down the route of making a biopic, uh, you know, ambitious and bring in lots of archival material. But I was still, you know, I wouldn't say obsessed, but I was still, you know, preoccupied with my own original 
premise, my question, you know, are there other people who had similar kinds of experiences, basically meaning that when you left, you were sort of, you felt like something had hit you on the head and, and uh, that he had sown little seed of, of uh, weird people and movies and books and interests. And, and uh, it turned out that that hunch was, you know, uh, correct in a way. A lot of people felt the same way. So that was the um, premise. And then I just started uh, contacting people and uh, that um, I knew had uh, had some similar experiences and who also respected him uh, and still respect him. There are many people who, who were there and, you know, um, times change and people change, but that have sort of, you know, been... been um, not backstabbing, but, you know, bad-mouthing and right. changing their perspectives after the fact. So in that sense, I just wanted to, to uh, you know, not make uh, like a strictly sunshine picture, but I felt no need to be involved in, for instance, family affairs or, right. you know, family disputes. And, you know, that's fodder enough for some other person to, to make a documentary about, but not me. I, I was just interested in, in what really happened when you went into the devil's den and you had these experiences. And, and uh, I got hold of that, you know, great uh, archival material and, you know, it's just it sort of bloomed once you start working on it then you know strange things happen good things happen and you know um, synchronicities and then suddenly hey this this is a film and now it's out there and, and the people in general seem to love it i'm very very happy about it yeah no it's it's fantastic it's both personal yet revealing um there's like it dispelled a lot for me just as someone with a you know obvious you know kind of peripheral knowledge of what happened back mm -hmm. in the day with him I'm sorry, my dog's barking. <laughs> um, but you mentioned synchronicities, and you know, I just talked to Mitch Horowitz uh, around Halloween, and he's been pretty much in the same kind of oeuvre of, you know, really dispelling and uh, putting more of the uh, the wonderfulness that he actually was, or like the the lineage that he really bestowed on a lot of us. I think within the occult world. And I thought that yeah. was, yeah, it, it's something I've been listening to. He keeps coming up and coming up. So I'm, I'm very like, I'm listening now, you know? Yeah, no, I think <laughs> that uh, one of the great things that um, I came to realize, of course, I realized when, when we met and hung out and during those San Francisco trips, but also something that grew on me uh, over the years and decades that followed is how unique LaVe was specifically, well, in many ways, but if we sort of stick to this, uh, you know, occult umbrella or this occult cluster of, of uh, perspectives, I think that um, he really brought some new things to the table because uh, anyone who goes into you know the occult whatever it means that so it's it's a kind of a uh, miasmic uh, quagmire in a way of many yeah. good things you know potential good beneficial changes and you know self -trans transformation and all these things but at the same time it can also be like a jungle or a literal quagmire of symbols you know you get stuck in the symbolic and you're fueled by something that never becomes reality you know right. and that can be you know a delightful little escapism but for Lave, it was uh, all about you know using things that he had been 
feeling inspired by and you know um, basically life affirming life enhancing things and phenomena like music and and movies and turning them into um uh, occult uh, matrices mm. in a way you know looking at things that really get you going and then um, using them as tools instead of relying on you know some uh, cabalistic tomes or some golden dawn magic right, and right. i think thinks i think that, that lave is so funny in the film too when he talks about his experiences as a, as a youngster when he became you know uh, attracted to the occult and you know yeah. working with these you know calling upon the angels and stuff like that and he just says that you know it it didn't work <laughs> yeah that was then, that was my favorite part when he talked about you know why yeah. not befriend the demons instead of protect yeah. yourself from them yeah, yeah absolutely but then still then you know we're we're using the the occult uh, terminology occult semantics sure. but then again you know um his his uh, he affected things mainly with his writing and with his music and in the personal encounters that uh, you know spill over into contemporary times through the people he mm. met and affected you know and and uh, it's as far removed from any kind of uh, arcane or or dusty stuff that I've ever encountered. No, actually, I've, I've I've met a few other people who took who have taken things to the uh, ultimate contemporary perspective to, to live in the here and now. And, and LaVey's approach was to sort of isolate yourself in the most beneficial of ways, uh, creating your total environment and just yeah. indulging in all the things that, that uh, fill you with um, the highest amount possible of life enhancing energy. Whereas other people could be, you know, uh, more extroverted and, you know, want to be part of the contemporary times and just indulge in all the technology and, you know, uh, whatnot. Um, but still, you know, his, his language was unique and he sort of catapulted occult thinking, I think, um, a lot. Because that era, of course, the 60s, when he formulated and sort of um, became a public figure mm -hmm. uh, or a figurehead, um, was sort of the, the, the epitome. That's when things changed, really. You could call it the age of Aquarius or whatever. Sure. But it's still, you know, there was a turning point where everything had been old. And now suddenly things were new. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. People were fueled by, you know, by chemistry or new waves of, of thinking. And, and um, I think it's just he was part of that cluster, but a very unique voice. He, he did not want to be, you know, um, the figurehead or the spokesperson of some, you know, disgruntled collectives. He just wanted to, to sort of uh, pep people who were smart enough to stay out. Right. I think, yeah, also, I, I, too, I wanted to inquire a bit more about his ideas of the preternatural, because I always looked at his form of Satanism, as, as many people do, as a humanist kind of approach or, mm -hmm. you know, a very uh, pragmatic um, kind of distillation of, of ideas. And, uh, but, you know, as we were saying earlier, that he mentioned that he would work with spirits and whatnot. And I was wondering if you had any kind of distillation of what his actual beliefs were when it came to the preternatural? Well, I think that, you know, um, a human being has a lifespan, you know, in his case, it was like 60, 67, 66, 67 years. Yeah. You know, some people live longer, some people live not so long, but the thing is that you change during this, uh, life, um, lifetime. And he certainly did, uh, 
I think when people um, talk about him and sort of the the image that is. Uh, I would say dominant now in a way is that he was just like you say a humanist and is a, a rationalist in a way and and um, materialist philosophy and um, and that's absolutely correct but there's no denying that earlier on at least you know when he formulated even before the church of satan in, in the magic circle uh, there was definitely a respect for and a will to experiment with what's called you know magic um, so and you know that's great those um, the input that we got from uh, Kenneth Anger in the film right. too when we talked that. about those um, you know magic circle days it must have been you know so cool to be there at that yeah. time and also that uh, you know program that's displayed in the film those weekly meetings of of all these wonderful esoteric subjects presented in such a humorous way yeah you're um, coming up with all my topics yep that's exactly <laughs> what i was gonna ask about yeah, he, yeah he he taught you know classes about ghosts and vampires uh my favorite though was the music and magic yeah uh, thing he was talking about but yeah mm -hmm. I, won I wondered if it, it was humorous though that was, that's well, kind of well, I think uh, with with everything, he he had a very humorous approach. But you know, he wouldn't do these things if it weren't serious. Why would right. someone waste time to you know uh, get like a two dollar admission at the door from you know twenty people? Uh, you know, it's it's not a lot of money. So I think that he really cared and he liked to be the person. He liked to be the. Um, maybe not expert, but to be the teacher in a way. And, you know, because he had a great uh, knowledge, certainly when I met him, uh, but I'm sure that was true also back in the 60s. A wonderful library and he read a lot and he hung out with really magical people. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, absolutely. There was, if we return to, to this thing, magic or not magic, absolutely yeah. magic. That may have changed in... in um, uh, the later decades, but I really don't think so. I think as he became a bit more reclusive, I think that he worked with his own techniques and perhaps didn't feel a need to uh, share a lot of that, like meaning working with music as ritual, for instance. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but at the same time, I think that um, it can be a good thing to you know say hey no i don't believe in this i believe in materialism and there's no no gods all gods are human creations etc etc that's also been uh, like a mainstay in the basic philosophy of the church of satan right. uh, so and i really see no contradiction because if the ultimate arbiter of one's destiny is yourself, then mm -hmm. you're free to believe whatever you want to and indulge in whatever you want to. Right, Whether both it's can a, exist. Yeah, 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 it's like, you know, you can absolutely be, a, be a, you know, a materialist and see, you know, the universe is based on like, you know, physical um, interrelationships of atoms and smaller things and protons and electrons and, and you know, whatever, or big processes too. Um, that's inevitable. We could just, you know, open our eyes and, and feel with our senses. That's the case. Weird things are going on. However, we have this thing called like empirical science and they have basically just been name givers. They've been watching too and feeling things too and they're just giving names and coming up with systems. Uh, but it's not really infallible because if you do 100 experiments and they all work the same then you know that's accepted as some kind of truth 
according right. to the materialist view. But what happens if the hundred and first one goes completely against that? You know, yeah. so it's just a matter of, of statistics and the, the law of probability. Uh, but anyway, I think that it doesn't take uh, a lot of... Uh, you know, hovering from above and looking down at things and seeing there are weird things here that we have not given names to yet. And historically, that's been placed under the umbrella of the occult right. most often. You know, phenomena that we don't know what they are yet, but they, they actually they exist as much as the stuff that we can explain. So it's, it's uh, kind of, a, I think it's a pointless uh, uh, attempt to figure out, you know, did he or did he not believe in... Uh, in magic, you know, right, who, right. who knows? I think he, he, he was certainly both. Absolutely right. a believer in magic, but I think as time grew, he did not want to be involved with what he called occultniks. Mm. Therefore, I think he took on more of the role of being, no, 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 I'm a strict materialist. Because he called it pop by that time. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he was a remarkably well-read, dexterous man. Uh, his taste in music and film is just stunning to me and i had no idea um mm -hmm. i wanted to ask a little bit about yeah going more in depth about your experience because it seems like his a lot of his ritual too was discourse he loved being surrounded by people and talking late into the night and mm -hmm. exchanging ideas and reading poetry and just fascinating like beings almost you know yeah. and uh yeah if you could explain more about like your first meeting with him and what that was like yeah, no, I mean, it's just uh, incredible. I mean, the the prequel to the story was kind of mind-blowing in the sense that I'd recorded this uh, song with my band, uh, Sweet Jane, which is about Jane Mansfield and LaVey and, you know, their relationship. And and uh, when that came out, uh, Genesis Peorage said that, you know, you should really send this to them because they would think it was, um, you know, it'd be a cool thing. And I thought, yeah, you know, literally, what the hell? Uh, and then, then um, I got a letter back, you know, from him, which is super nice. And thank you for the, you know, uh, endeavor and keeping her alive and, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and then um, uh, I was appointed uh, as a member, you know, and that's a cool thing. Got a membership card. And of course, you know, I wanted to... to um, fuel this kind of inspiration even more so i went there i think the year uh the year after in 1989 the first time and um it was just to you know um like i hope i've conveyed it in the film yeah. you got there very late at night and it's usually the same story for for most people who, who were uh, allowed in, so to speak, uh, got there late at night, or uh, sometimes go out to dinner first and then come back to the black house. And then uh, it was just like, you know, uh, coffee and, and talking and movies and uh, listening to music. And it sounds so banal in a way, but it was so charged also because if you, like I was, uh, you know, if you have this sort of romantic notion about what was going on in the 60s and this was the actual place, you know, where the Church of Satan existed and, you know, I, I got to see uh, the, the, the ritual chamber that was very, very rarely used um, and stuff like that. And it's just, in a way, like a, a beautiful museum of very satanic things, but also, you know, the library and even the kitchen and like movie posters. And he was certainly a, a collector. So there was a lot of stuff. Um, and um, just to be in that environment was cool. And then he was also very, very um, a friendly uh, character, very friendly. I mean, 
there was uh, there was a reason it was not like an open house you know he made it possible for me for instance to to come there and say hi and then after the first meeting uh, i again thought well that was beautiful and interesting and stuff like that but then it just went on you know so in a way the um, thing with this uh, white stains record was the um, door opener uh, that uh, allowed for me to to come in but then my own yeah, yeah, it's a sigil, and and then I guess my my uh, my own behavior and the good times and sort of the resonance we felt uh, made me uh, be you know continually welcomed, and, and that was great. Yeah, I was uh, yeah I was just taken aback by just uh, especially Blanche Barton, who you know previous to this film I hadn't really heard speak, and like she really stood out to me as somebody I would love to you know chat with and know more about, but just the, you know the way she described you know, just kind of this anarchic magic that everyone had. And yeah. that's been another tether for me, especially in the series of these podcasts is I'm figuring out, you know, this, this beautiful want and need to create your own kind of spiritual trajectory and magical praxis or an art. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, um, I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. I just, I love that there's this tether that keeps coming up about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, things happen when, when, uh, when the time is right. I mean, it's a vague kind of banal cliche, but it's also very true, I think, is that um, um, convergence and synchronicities and, you know, minds melting and, and the third mind aspects, you know, you can't really force it. You know, it just happens when it happens. And um, once I had uh, set my mind on uh, making this film, it was very, uh, it, it took some time, but it was generally swift and well greased and, you know, no mishaps. It was just, uh, I don't know, it's a, a beautiful production. And I think that has to do with the fact that, you know, now the time is right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the world the world needed to see uh, this aspect of LaVe and not give in to, you know, one side's bad mouthing, nor the um, some other side's, you know... Um, uh, acolyting. Right. <laughs> it was very personable and everyone, you know, there was good mention of, you know, he had his moments, he had his fits and, mm-hmm. you know, he was a human. And I, I did, I loved the dispelling nature of the film, but it was also, it mystified him a bit for me as someone that, you know, has been just continuously misconstrued. Like his lineage mm-hmm. is continuously uh, yeah. ragged on or misconstrued. And I think there was a big fad. It's even mentioned in the documentary. I think so, there was a big fad to kind of, badmouth him within like a culture Mm -hmm. yeah and it's just weird to me how it keeps getting this roller coaster of his lineage yeah yeah yeah. but i mean uh, that's the the problem uh when you die you you can't really control these things you know you you can leave a legacy that's uh either you you know your writings uh, and uh, other things you may have created and uh, recorded and that can speak for itself and then you have people who knew you and you know who can talk for you that could of course swing both ways also you know, it could be someone who did, didn't like you they will badmouth you and people who, who do did uh, you know um, respect you they will speak favorably of you so it's beyond your control but i think that uh, in lave's sense um there is uh, an extra dimension to it and that's the fact that he's not just um you know a minute 
figure in occultism or anything like that. He was a great, you know, American uh, cultural icon. Mm-hmm. Not even subcultural icon, you know, a real cultural icon. Uh, the Satanic Bible has never been out of print. And you have the, you know, the bullshit aspects of popularity, meaning like, you know, American horror story uh, where he's portrayed so badly. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. So he exists on the map and he always has, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, maybe uh, on a magical level, maybe my film and similar, uh, similar, uh, expressions are counter forces to that kind of dilution that comes from a cheap trashy uh, things like american horror story you know because um, if i were portrayed like that uh, after my death i would absolutely haunt them i would yeah. <laughs> curse them from beyond because it's so trite and yeah. you know it, and they even call him by name so it's um, it's kind of pathetic. So uh, I would say that my film is um, a counteraction. It's a medicine against that specific thing because it really, really pissed me off. Yeah. I mean, lineage is a great thing to talk about, especially yeah. uh, haunting through art and creative endeavors. You know, I find a lot of similarities between him and Adam Parfrey. The more oh, I learn. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's um, the lineage is, is obvious. Yeah. Uh, Adam uh, really uh, learned a lot of things from LaVey. And I'm not talking now about, you know, to make a ritual, you do this and this and this. It was just this kind of hungry attitude that yeah. can be uh, pruned and disciplined and, you know. Unapologetic. Yeah. unapologetic and, and also quality and a sense of humor. So I think, you know, Feral House is this uh, beautiful testament, not only to the genius of, of uh, Adam, but also to LaVey. I wouldn't say, you know, Holly to LaVey because the, Adam drifted into many things, right. uh, but, but just the, the attitude and the quality for yeah. sure. And it was just so good to see Kenneth Anger speak. I don't think I've seen him speak outside of, you know, your clips and documentaries mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really wanted to talk more about this. Uh, I forget the term, but the intentional environment, the uh, total uh, environment, total environment. Yeah. yeah. If we could, yeah, just kind of talk about that more because I think one of my ongoing missions in life is to customize everything in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and it seems to be, uh, cross-pollinating with that idea. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a, it's a good way of expressing it. I mean, it's, it's your own expression, mm-hmm. your own term, and I think that's a, a great thing, you know, customizing. You know, it's right. like, uh, one could call it like bespoke life, bespoke right. lifestyle. And I think that uh, it goes uh, beyond that too. I mean, you could look at it from that big lifestyle um perspective meaning you know i want to fill my life with as many meaningful things and people as possible to maximize my feeling of you know life enhancement and you know just life affirming uh, lifestyle but that's that's good you can do that if you're intelligent and you know devoted to the cause of leading a good life but the total environment is also uh something more specific in terms of uh magic you know most people perhaps have uh, a designated corner of their room for an altar or something spiritual or magical. Um, I think that's, you know, inherent in the human 
psyche to have that right. to have a holy space to have a little that could be if you have a space big enough you can have a designated room or if not you could go to church you know something it's just you know i think we have a need of that thing but the total environment just like most things stemming from lave goes beyond this thing where you have you know something holy on an altar because we associate those things with uh, our uh, monotheistic uh, heritage and and the counteracting that by becoming you know satanists and uh, all these things but the total environment really doesn't need to have anything to do with those like spiritual or magical or right. or, or arcane things it could also be um, pure talismania Right. You know, staying inside a three-dimensional talisman that you've created yourself could, for instance, be um, uh, sitting in a room like I'm doing with bookshelves filled with absolute, you know, uh, picked volumes that resonate and by osmosis send out their intelligence and inspiration and things like that. Um, so in that sense, uh, it could also be uh, a design thing. You design things in that room for instance or or space uh in a way that's particularly appealing and inspirational inspiring uh for you uh play some some music that's you know um and it goes beyond just again goes beyond uh just playing a song that you like or reading a book that you like it's like an immersion yeah, it's filling uh, every corner with exactly it's a conscious immersion into something that will take you uh, over in a way and that's the whole point uh, that is to, to be um, in that sense you know it's why the use of the word talisman is good because a talisman is something like you charge with projection mm-hmm. and then it you know radiates back this thing you know magical power or whatever you want to call it sure. um, psychic resonance um, so he said that it was beneficial and and anger has been talking about these things also Mm-hmm. Because in a world that's so uh, collectivistic, so stupid, so blatantly self-destructive, and that also spills over into becoming destructive for other uh, sentient beings, other humans, for animals, uh, basically we, we're living in, in uh, end times <laughs> in many ways. So I think the, the um, creation of, of your own total environment is something that has uh, it's it's um how should i put it uh, has to do with the self-preservation and mm-hmm. self-preservation is something that is very very high on the list of priorities for for uh, for the lavean satanists right. um, so it all goes together um, but then of course as is mentioned uh, lavey mentions in the film too these total environments that are more like um, theme parks or or conceptual environments um and we've Much been, like the black house yeah 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 absolutely yeah. but uh, i was thinking also uh, of things that lavey mentions like disneyland and disney world and right. uh, for some people it might be strange you know what does he mean it's usually kind of a, a pain in the ass to be in in disneyland <laughs> you know it's fun but also hectic but 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 uh, at the same time it is a construction of something where you are completely uh, at the mercy you know the good mercy of an environment that you you're just in in there 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 no you know uh, there's no noise from the outside uh, it is an escapism you don't have to think about your you know trials and tribulations you're there to relax and have a good time but um, 
recently, you know, there's this uh, series that um, Vanessa and I have watched, Westworld. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, yeah. But it's, it, it's um, you know, the first season was great. And then, you know, it's usually sort of dwindles out. But the idea... Uh, is something that uh, is very, very LaVeyan. And LaVey loved the film, the original mm-hmm. film of Westworld. So that kind of thing where, where you uh, enter something that is a construct. Uh, and it's a construct that can be, you know, deceiving, as in Westworld, but it could also be something that's highly inspiring. I mean, I guess that's why people go on, you know, recreational trips, like they could go to, you know, yoga retreats or some kind of other retreats. It's to be immersed, you know, no outside pressure. Uh, and if you extend that back into your own life and control it yourself, uh, then you don't have to be at the mercy of anything potentially terrifying or negative. You're just uh, in um, a resonance chamber of, yeah. of good things. It's, uh, it's fascinating to think, too, about doing it uh, within the mind uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, there's a lot of allusion to building mind palaces and, and partitions and rooms inside the mind and, and oh, constructing, yeah. you know. So I love the, the idea that there could be a talismanic, <laughs> you know, mindset. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's, that brings me to um, – uh, one thing that for the just for the sake of of uh, time had to be cut out of the film, but you know, like I said, you know that one of the premises was that wow, what happened? You know, did Lavey actually, you know, uh, had did he have some kind of plan, or why did I leave the house feeling that whoa, I've been knocked uh, over my head with for me like with Ben Hecht or you know mm-hmm. something like that? So uh, Larry Wessel. Uh, who is a filmmaker and also a friend of, of uh, LaVey's and just a, a great guy. Uh, LaVey, when he, Larry was there, LaVey brought out this, this poem, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the poet's name is Don Blanding. You'll have to check that, Don Blanding. And it, who wrote a poem that was actually like a, in a bestseller volume, like sold 100,000 copies or something called Vagabond's House. Vagabond's House. And Larry couldn't figure out, you know, why the hell is Dr. LaVey, you know, reading this poem to me? Uh, but it all made sense as things do because that poem is about a vagabond who basically sits and fantasizes uh, about the house that he is one day going to build and what he's going to put in all of the different rooms and chambers of this vagabond's house, of this mind palace. So this vagabond is building his total environment inside his mind. And it's just... um, you know, uh, when you know these things and how LaVey favored the total environment, it's just a completely a, a programming yeah, of Larry, Larry's mind. And, yeah. and now Larry's, you know, so many decades later, Larry's actually working on a film called uh, Vagabond's House. And that has to do with, he's been interviewing, it's a documentary, so he's been interviewing people who are weird collectors. You know, oh, cool. they're, they're obsessed by collecting specific things. Obscurities. So, and, yeah, yeah, and they, they are then... Uh, they, they are then, you know, building their own vagabond houses and Larry's putting them all together as little rooms in his own vagabond's house. It's a beautiful thing and it just goes to show that, that um, 
culture is the most potent form of magic there is you know you can you can uh, in you can instruct people but and you can do it in a blatant way most likely people would just go you know no thank you i'm not interested in demagogia but you can seduce people with culture you can inform people with culture and most importantly you can inspire people with culture and that obviously in lave's case lingers on decades and decades after oh, yeah. he uh, after he died one thing i wanted to touch on too and you mentioned it with westworld being his favorite film he was a huge fan of artificial partners or uh yeah. uh you know i it, i see a lot of parallels to what like maybe the transhumanist party has become you know mm-hmm. and i was wondering if you could talk more about his obsession about that yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, obsession is a very good word. Uh, it was not a mere interest or, or you know, a little fad or a hobby. He, yeah. he constructed real life, um, <laughs> real life. He constructed um, humanoids, uh, basically uh, redesigning uh, mannequins, uh, like store mannequins, and then, uh, you know, dressing them up and, you know, talking to them and just uh, having them, for instance, in the den of iniquity, that bar that he had in the Black House. Um, and he was, his take on this was that he was so fed up with humanity and the sort of the stupidity of humans. So that's a kind of a very misanthropic creation. And uh, when you talk to people who are not so savvy or psychologically um, fle- dynamic, you know, people mostly think of, well, you know, that's for sexual purposes. You know, uh, I don't know when you're, you were born but when i grew up there was this you know the inflatable doll was a thing in all the sex shops you get inflatable you know fuck dolls Mm. and in that sense you know uh, that has become almost like um, an icon or a mythic uh, emblem of when people think of uh, humanoids now this is changing a lot and i would say being a you know devout laveian in a way that a lot of it has to do with his occult influence because what happened um, I would say in uh, probably in the mid 90s and again the uh, sex thing and the pornography thing usually always drives technology in different directions you know because whatever is uh, sexual pornographic potentially something people want in their own home for sexual uh, pleasure they're willing to pay for and what people are willing to pay for technology and corporations are willing to invest in uh, so what happened in the mid 90s was that for instance an american company called real doll started making these um, well sexual partners mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with of latex and they were very very lifelike i, I had the uh, opportunity to see them at the, um, uh, the ces thing in las vegas over a couple of years and they really developed but basically they were uh, sexual entertainers non-sentient right. <laughs> uh, but but the thing is that uh, it started changing. And that's exactly what LaVey predicted, is that it's better to have uh, a doll and have a good relationship with a doll than to have a bad relationship with a human being. Yeah. You know, we're, we're out, they're out to, to con you or be uh, smart asses or frustrating or rip you off or, you know, uh, cause a ruckus, seek an argument, all these sort of human traits. Um, so he built his own uh, cadre of of people and it was not necessarily ideal people either it was usually uh, memories from his own youth like oh, wow. 
drunks he had seen, drunk ladies who'd you know pissed themselves, and sailors on leave and stuff like that. So it was kind of a, also a um, an atavistic thing, rebuild, crazy, yeah. yeah, rebuilding things from from his own youth in in three dimensions, and he could interact. I don't know what he did. You know, right. it could be. For it's instance, quite beautiful, actually. Oh, oh, it, it's incredible and incredibly yeah. magical because it's so, as also the film shows, he was very psychologically savvy. Right. You know, he really knew how the human... Uh, Called himself might, a Freudian. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, blatantly so. And also, he, you know, lauding uh, Willem Reich in the right. thank you yeah. list, you know, the, the reference lists and stuff like that. It's really a, you know, pioneering uh, thing to do. Um, because when he did that, that was basically, you know, only 10 years after Reich had been, you know, incarcerated. That's right. By the US government. Mm-hmm. So, so. Anyway, uh, I think that with the human, artificial human companions was something that he created for himself, but he was generous, so he shared it. Uh, and then whether people do that in a satanic environment, I don't know. Uh, but I do know for a fact, now that we're seeing this uh, robotic development with AI and stuff like that, is that the little ugly uh, gadgets have taken over that role as artificial human companions. They're not humanoid. They have, in a way, human sentience. They can speak and we can understand it. You know, I can say something and they can talk back. So this kind of a pseudo human thing going on. But LaVey was more interested in the, something that evokes a humanity. Uh, perhaps not the most beautiful humanity, but at least something that gives something back to you when you project something on them. Yeah, that's super interesting that it was from memories of people and, you know, like uh, kind of disheveled, destitute types too. Yeah. Because he had talked about the artificial, these humanoids as being kind of the perfect human in a way. Yeah, for him, they were. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see that like the renegade in him even like was you know superimposed on you know humanity as itself too he enjoyed mm-hmm. the destitute and the uh the disheveled. oh absolutely and the yeah. sleazy yeah and the sleazy mm-hmm. well i'd like to talk more about maybe your projects now not to you know totally focus on <laughs> anton because i know you've got tons of stuff in the woodworks yeah yeah, yeah. so i really enjoyed the uh, loyalty does not end with death thought that was a very cool uh, it's your work with Genesis Peorage. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there was, I remember you talking about like it, it happened every 30 years. Or... Yeah, let's see. Every uh, every uh, 14th year. 14th. Every 14th. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I it's a tri- it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> a, it's a tri- trilogy of, of, uh, of records. The first one came out in 1990 and then the second one in 2004 mm-hmm. and then the third one actually in 2019 so it was one year uh, extra um, but it was um, again something like um, you start out with just uh, collaborating on something but time is interesting time has a you know creativity of its own and then after a while you feel shouldn't we do another one and then after an equal amount of time as it turned out to be, you know, shouldn't we make another one? And then, you know, you can then call it a trilogy. That doesn't mean that it was a trilogy originally conceived in 1989. Um, right. 
but but it turned out that way and they I think they, yeah. they they go very well together and it's just like this uh, uh, you know uh, ambiance of spoken word electronics uh, it's kind of timeless now you know it does it's not modern but it's not old school either it's just sort of free floating in in uh, in between and that's something that i really like and you know uh, just recently uh, the book sacred intent uh, came out too and that's a very similar project because it's a long ranging project uh, it's basically an anthology of all the interviews and conversations i've had with genesis from 1986 up until 2019 so that's a long span and same thing there you, you know if you had done these things just randomly, you can, of course, anthologize a book. You can anthologize them in a book when a certain amount of time has passed and it becomes substantial enough. But we actually decided on making the book, not back in 1986, but actually, uh, say, 1998, something like that. And we have since then uh, carried on interviews, not for publication in other fora, you know, but accumulating them as uh, discussions to be saved and to be integrated in this book that just came out. So in that sense, it's uh, been a very interesting project, just like the records, uh, mm -hmm. to see if there is consistency or if there's radical change. Um, and you can say with Jan, it's always both. There is a consistency right. of a clear signal and, and the beautiful uh, philosophical clarity, uh, but there's also radical changes going on uh, along the way like with the Pandrogeny project and right. uh, so many things. So I think um, this book is something that, uh, well, it won't, you know, no one will be able to, to make something similar. Someone can anthologize other people's interviews over a long period of time. But we had in this book, we have my voice and Jan's voice, you know, talking about interesting things. And it's like um, just one conversation that began in 86 and ended in 2019 yeah that's very cool i've always been really interested to hear more i know from white stains to now what like i know that you've always kind of mixed what i would call audiomancy or just kind of you know trans-dimensional wayfaring with making with music making and creating yeah. and i was wondering if yeah you could talk a little bit maybe about your pro process then to now like what your experience with in that trajectory has been very fascinated by it yeah yeah no absolutely i mean it, it's a uh, uh i'm you know working with many different things and i have had problems with that at times you know this standard thing of you know maybe you should focus on one thing and become successful but i haven't been able to you know so yeah, i can either. you know what can i do <laughs> so but basically the music for me has always been like a, a soothing agent in between the rational writing mind and the perhaps you know the or the visual mind of the filmmaker and you know it, it's important to make music because it's completely non-intellectual completely non-rational in a way uh, at least you know taking part of music when you construct the music it can be contain some of those elements um, but still i think that uh, when you begin, um, when you're young and you're hungry and you're easily enthused, you're easily inspired, that's the phase of being enamored. So when you make music in that early phase, it's usually uh, paying homage 
to what you've been inspired by. Right. So I think um, White Stains, for instance, uh, was uh, uh, many bands in one. We were like a psychedelic rock group and we were uh, slightly weirder sounding and then we were also electronic and some attempts at pop music and, and some, you know, just dark ambient stuff. So in that sense, that, I think sums up pretty well that this uh, phase of being enamored by music in itself, you know, the potential of music. And then, you know, as, as um, again, the decades have passed now, I think now I'm at a point where, where the actual music, meaning the sounds, they are a container for uh, a magical charge. And usually the charge comes with, uh, or from or via my words and that could be poetic meaning like non-rational but it could also be rational meaning like a straightforward you know uh, spell or narrative yeah. exactly uh, but what's changed is that i have um, now almost exclusively uh, for the past i don't know five six maybe ten years exclusively worked with uh, talismanic aspect uh, i would not make music that is not meant to have something happen it, it yeah. is magical you know because um if i were to do something else you know that would be entertainment or fluff or bubble it could gum. be what yeah bubble, it could be wonderful it could be you know deeply you know evocative or beautiful or emotional but i for me it's like with everything you know i just need to have that charge in there mm -hmm. to be efficient. You know, I can't explain it in any other way. Uh, I do make uh, soundtrack music uh, for, um, for my own films and stuff. And there I wouldn't say that, you know, that has a charge. But of course you could say the music helps create an atmosphere in a film that's mine and that absolutely contains a charge. Yeah. So in that sense, it's by proxy in a way. Yeah, talismanic music creation is a huge part of my personal practice as well. And mm -hmm. I'm always interested to hear from other folks, like, kind of what, uh, like, what that process may look like as you're kind of constructing things. Are you going with kind of analog soundscapes? Are you putting yourself in transcendental states? Are you, you know what I mean? Are you, uh, are you yeah. like, the, all the intentional parts of all the track mean everything, right? Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I love that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that for for me it's um it's not so uh, I don't know I seem to function like this um uh, I have so much to do you know right. and that's a very beautiful thing so I need to compartmentalize stuff so what ha has happened over the past year for instance is that I've just said to to Vanessa and it's like uh, this coming weekend I'm I'm making music you know, I have to compartmentalize and, and say that, you know, uh, everything else has to wait, you know, I'm just going to work because it's also the thing with, I like to have everything uh, visible in the sense that of gear, you know, mm -hmm. the effect boxes and synths and stuff like that. And I, I mean, I make some stuff in the computer also, but I like the hands-on aspect. So I love yeah. to have all these things out, but when you can't have it out um, continually, then you're, you know, in a way forced to be focused when you can have them out. So I think that uh, what happens is that 
I make a lot of music uh, during a fairly folk, you know, condensed amount of time. And that also includes recording poems or spells or, or these things. And then I just put it together and then that's done. And that can go into this release or that release or that soundtrack. Right. Um, and, and then I just move on to some other work. Uh, and then, uh, then I long again for the time when I can <laughs> drag it out again, you know. Yeah, no, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, I love what you do with your wife Vanessa Sinclair. Like you've got some great collaborations, lots of cut-ups and visual and musical. Um, one thing that stood out to me was you guys have a Patreon goal of six hundred and sixty-six dollars. Yeah, when that's hit, you guys are going to release the first like exquisite corpse book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it, it, it's uh, the, the Patreon adventure has been uh, wonderful. And uh, what happened was that when we reached uh, $500, we said that now we're going to do a monthly TV show. And we are actually doing that. We've done the one episode and we're going to record. Mind? Yeah, the 23rd Mind TV show. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the new episode will be out, if not on Monday, so it will be out on Tuesday. This, this coming week so that's a monthly thing and then we thought what the hell do we do now you know where do we go from here and we we have both just now wrapped up two heavy books i've written a new right. novel and vanessa has has wrapped up her book about scansion in art and psychoanalysis which is super interesting uh, but now we feel that whoa this is fantastic you know it's not that we will have more time because you only have a limited amount of time. <laughs> but the allocation to these projects, they're now gone. Uh, so that said, we thought maybe we should write something together, you know, like an exquisite corpse kind of novel. And since we're both really into the cut-ups and, you know, exp the experimental form, uh, this could be very uh, interesting. And so when we reach that goal of 666, I think we only have $100 to go, um, on Patreon, uh, then we will publish uh, two chapters a month, one each new moon and one each full moon. Very um, and we'll just keep it going until whatever story <laughs> there will be ends. You know, yeah. it'll, be, it'll be a full-fledged uh, weird novel, that's for sure. Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, let's talk about the novel a little bit. I'm very interested to hear how your process was doing something fictional. Yeah, no, I, I, I uh, absolutely love it. And I feel that if there is something, some kind of core, you know, if I at, at gunpoint would have to choose between my many, you know, creative expressions, I would say, you know, uh, please don't kill me. I'll stick with fiction, you know, fuck everything else. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Because that, again, is uh, during my uh, escapades and, and uh, explorations. Uh, fiction is the, it's the most rewarding to work with, but it's also the most powerful in terms of, of uh, magic because it's like um, people lower their guards. And I'm not saying this, that you know, I write these things to manipulate people. But what I mean is that it's a beautiful form of communication that works on very deep levels. And the level that I'm after always is inspiring people you know, mm -hmm. to think for themselves or check this out, whatever. That's my, my life uh, task in a way. So the new uh, novel is actually my second. Uh, it's called uh, The Devil's Footprint. And it's, if I were to define it, I would say it's, uh, it's uh, a satire in which uh, uh, Satan is given a carte blanche or a carte noire in a way uh, from God to clean up the mess of the earth, you know. Okay. 
things have gone too far and it's you know the the normal you know conservatism versus radicalism and it's you know and this the same battle that we can read about in the newspapers daily Mm-hmm. like square I and mean, we our times are so extreme that it's actually like we're living in a satire uh vanessa and i usually say that you know um american politics today is just like something that borrows and and ballard and you know jonathan swift yeah. uh, would write they, no <laughs> yeah. they couldn't even write the absurdity of it uh, so yeah, cannibalism so, doesn't even come close no 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 well <laughs> just, just wait yeah right <laughs> but, yeah and and so so basically the the novel is i think um um uh, a satire about the times that we're living in and what need what i feel needs to be done uh, but of course it's not really me speaking i can sort of uh, filter these things but it's a very you know uh, sardonic and humorous kind of Satan figure mm-hmm. uh, who, who, who starts to set things right again. And that in itself is a very radical process. I'm not going to spoil anything, uh, but it is, I hope, something that will be appealing to people because of the um, extreme measures, <laughs> the extreme poetic licenses that are taken in the book. I think they may have a cathartic value. For the readers people will feel oh wow this is so outrageous and absurd whoa this might be criminal even but i love reading it you know because of the fact that people have such pent-up emotions these days you know, not only with politics and you know the coronavirus and mass psychosis it's just uh, extreme times and if people can't let off steam and have those cathartic moments through culture, then then it could be uh, very detrimental to to the individual human psyche. Yeah, I agree. It sounds very prescient. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have plans for its publishing? Yeah, but uh, the thing is, it's so so. I haven't worked anything on, on that yet because okay. I literally uh, finished it just like uh, about a week ago. Oh, and, congrats. Uh, Vanessa's going to read it. I'm going to read it again. And then I'm going to, to, to uh, try to find the best possible literary agent for it. Mm-hmm. It has, uh, I would say, I mean, I'm hubristic. It has huge commercial potential in times like these yeah. uh, because it's kind of provocative and it will make people angry, but it will also make people happy. Um, so I think that um, the main thing now is to find like the most intelligent and savvy literary agent that can really place the book in the right uh, publishing environment. Yeah. Sounds like the plan. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have, I'm sure you guys have tons of other stuff coming out. Is there anything else that's more like soon? Uh, other I than don't... just your amazing Patreon and 23rd <laughs> mind and, yeah, and no, Genesis. And yeah, I no, love it. Yeah, it's it's kind of insane. We we are going to the U.S. soon. We're going to have a, a cool. book launch thing for Sacred Intent in New York together with Genesis on March nineteenth, and oh. there's also um, uh, a film festival in in, um, in Brooklyn that are showing uh, some of my films. Uh, also over the weekend, over the um, spring equinox weekend. weekend. Uh, so that'll, that'll you know, um, be fun. But I think in terms of projects, um, we are working on uh, a new book uh, together uh, about um, outsider art, specifically in um, uh, a mental health perspective. Uh, and then also Fenris Wolf number 10, 
uh, and some new art books and, and just wrapping up a documentary about a beautiful Swedish photographer. Um, and, you know, just endless, endless right. stuff. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I like to be multifaceted, but you guys are definitely paragons of, <laughs> yeah. of, of artistic intent. And I really appreciate yeah. you guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, Carl, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I hope we can do it again. It's yeah. always a pleasure. Always. Yeah. And uh, I am a patron now, so I will definitely keep up on everything. Yeah. I can. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you very much. Mm-hmm. All right, Carl. You have a wonderful day. Take care. Bye. I will take this time to say what I wanted to say a little bit more about Genesis Peorage. And with Carl's permission, because we did record the interview literally a week before Genesis passed. And as you probably heard from the interview, and if you don't know Carl's work already, him and Genesis have created a plethora, a a multitude of works together. And uh, Carl Abrahamson also recently published a book of interviews that he's been doing with Genesis for decades. It's called Sacred Intent. You should check that out. But with um, with Carl's permission um, and via his Patreon... He was the first one I looked to when Genesis passed because uh, of their long and storied, illustrious kind of career together. Carl was one of the first Temple of Psychic Youth members. And, um, oh, you are ahead. Yes, I am ahead. Um, and uh, he released on via Patreon a poem that he wrote the day that they found out that Genesis had passed. And I thought I'd read it. <clears throat> Says a poem for the poet. That time has come when time moves on amidst a brave creator, amidst a bold narrator of magics and journeys of loved ones now gone. The trip is just beginning, just drifting, shifting shapes. Get a new suitcase, travel in style. All of this is possible all of the time. Let's never forget the messenger, the message, the process, the temple. In intricate details, intuitive twists, curved hand, crooked smile. Baba Mago Supreme calling on the spirits to become who you are with sacred intent Undoubtedly, his name was Master. Undoubtedly, her name was Master. What a blessed honor to move on and your mischievous company. Loyalty does not end with death. You cut it up so well. Scissors and glue, scissors and glue. Still shines somewhere. Your sparkling supernova express. And here and now. In the morning after the night, I fall in love with the light. First, it was. Then, it knew it was. And then, it was 
I-T. Carl Abrahamson, March 14th, 2020. Um, I also wanted to... I talked a little bit about it in the beginning, but, you know, I've been very vocal about not deifying people. Um, I think it's more important now than ever to humanize them. And, of course, Genesis was no... Uh, perfect being, but I think that's why they reign supreme in my life. Not because of the bad, but because of what they generated. And I have here my long and dirty, dusty, totally full of notes um, copy of the Temple of Psychic Youth's Psychic Bible. Um, it meant a lot to me, especially um, in generating We the Hallowed, which is our kind of international collective. And uh, I just wanted to read something that I marked way back in the day. Um, like I said, this <laughs> this book couldn't be more earmarked and uh, dog-eared, I mean. And, and uh, I have a terrible habit of writing in notes. I guess that goes back to the Carl Abrahamson talk when we talked about customizing everything in talismanic living. But anyways, this is from Freedom of Salvation, a discourse on being radiqueer. Genesis says, Not only did I have an empathy that a L-if-e built upon and with creativity enhanced by travel was viable, but I was compelled simultaneously to believe as a metaphysical byproduct and art as a holy calling. A mission or a quest that once recognized could never be discarded or abandoned no matter what the consequences. You cannot forget once you have felt this and it becomes your duty to serve with honor this campaign as you survive and interact with others of your army, tribe, and rogue genetic kind. And with those words, I, I felt a calling and I, I, I pretty much um, felt the impetus to create We the Hallowed. Um, they go on to say, and I think this is true now more than ever, especially with coronavirus, social distancing, and a lot of alone time that we're feeling. But we're so lucky, so lucky to live in a day and age where I can talk to you guys in a live chat. I can, I can converse with you uh, no matter the quarantine. And they say, next... Go looking for these unorthodox, like-minded individuals. Have undying faith that they exist and are probably looking for you too. Offer stimulation, speculation, exchange ideas, collaborate, coordinate, share information and theories, recommend sources and names of activators you admire who have come to your attention via media, myth, or synchronicity. Nothing is stronger in its anarchic potency and cultural resonance than a pack of previously lone wolves. Be prepared to do mundane, 
tedious and dull tasks to demonstrate to yourself and those cooperating with you both your understanding that you are involuntarily bonded service to a higher calling, art, and that your ego and public recognition are not your motive, nor can they, nor will they seduce you. So I thought that was extremely potent, and especially when it comes to lineages, which Carl and I talked pretty extensively about Anton LaVey's lineage, how it can be malformed, how it can be, you know, um, misconstrued or, or taken or misused. Um, it's important to relish in the humanity of the people that have sparked inspiration in us and revere them in those lights, but not to deify, because we're all here to haunt on with art. Um, I want to thank John aside, Philip Blair, thank you for joining. Sorry if my timing was uh, misconstrued, uh, because I'm in Mountain Standard Time. Derek Hunter, Una Song, always a pleasure. Jasmine Emmerich, uh, Out of Mind was here. Uh, forgive me if I'm forgetting anyone else, but this has been a true joy, and I have been kind of quiet about talking about my thoughts about Jen. It's been a month since their birthday. It's been a month since my birthday. And I've always felt synchronicities uh, with them. So I appreciate you guys chopping by. Please, if you didn't catch the uh, beginning of the Carl Abrahamson chat, um, check it out. It's one of my favorites. It's all about talismanic living and creating your own magics as is the tether with Prag Magic. And with that, I love you guys. Stay safe. Stay warm. Be happy. Say hi to Mary. And good night. Haunt on, y'all. <laughs>